I am Sheen, a scientist, social entrepreneur, Oxford and Cambridge graduate, and you are listening to Dream Girl, my weekly podcast where I chat to incredible women about their journey, career choices, and generally about being awesome. Hello and welcome back to Dream Girl. I am Sheen, your host, and today my guest is Aurora Akanksha. Aurora is a 34-year-old Indian-Canadian audit coordinator at the UN. She comes from a family of refugees. She was born in India, raised in India and Saudi Arabia, and settled in Canada. She announced her candidacy to challenge incumbent UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in the 2021 United Nations leadership election. She is the first woman and first millennial candidate for the position and the first known candidate to challenge an incumbent. If selected, Aurora would be the youngest ever and first female Secretary General of the UN in its 76-year history, which is incredible. Okay, hi Aurora, how are you? Good, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for this chat. I know we've been planning this for yeah. like a couple of months now. You me right after my New York yes. Times article. So oh, yeah, literally, I found you from the New York Times article and I was just blown away and I've been stalking you since and I was like, okay, we need to chat. <laughs> So I'm really glad we finally made time for this. First question. Yes, thank you. Why do we why do you go by Aurora instead of Akanksha? So um so I went mm-hmm. to boarding school. And like in your boarding school, you're known by mm-hmm. your last name. Your shirts have your last name, uh your sports jersey, everything, your um like you know, your shirts are marked, your skirts are marked, because uh, you have common laundry. So everyone has always called me Aurora, okay. Aurora, Aurora. Uh the u.s like aurora is um so in my like i remember moving to the u.s at that time like you know um you have to open bank accounts and stuff like that so even my bank accounts are aurora because people call that right. first name so it's always been stuck with me with that said i go by both mm-hmm. to be honest with you i know when i meet an indian person they for them saying a yeah. is so easy that i'm like yeah a uh but yeah but it's um like I said, I'm okay with both, but if I have to choose, I'll just say Okay, it, I guess, yeah, because Aurora can be um, a white name as well, right? So that's probably why they think that if this is your first name. But very interesting. Yeah. I, I personally think Akanksha is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful name, right? Because names with Ks are very rare, but the sound is really nice. But I think that's a beautiful name. But yeah, let's start from the beginning. As you mentioned, you know, um, so you have Indian backgrounds, but then you grew up in different places. So walk us through the journey. Where did Akanksha's journey start? Um, so it started with my mm-hmm. grandparents. Uh, they're all refugees. They moved from Pakistan to India uh, um, in 1947 after mm-hmm. the partition. On my dad's side, my grandparents were street vendors. They sold tea and samosas, and they couldn't even complete their education after mm-hmm. the partition. Um, on my mom's side, my granddad was the only working member. Again, couldn't complete education. He was a mailman with the government. He would deliver mail mm-hmm. and bicycle. Um, so their goal was on both sides to educate their children so they could have a future, um, so they could have a better future than them. So my parents are one of the first physicians in their respective mm-hmm. areas. Um, so I was born in a family that values education and hard work. So I was born in 1986, mm-hmm. July 31st, the same day as Harry Potter. Oh, Carter. check you out. <laughs> Great knowledge. <laughs> yes, that's another story, the whole Harry yeah. Potter love affair. But um, so, um, so I, was, and I had a really nice childhood. I was first girl um, from my mm-hmm. mom's side. After three boys, I was super pampered by my mm-hmm. grandmother. I mean, both my grandmothers, but of course more by my maternal grandmother. And my nickname, and back in the day, like, for all millennials in India, we all oh, yeah. had nicknames that were so 
different oh, yeah. than our own names. Like my name Oh, Korea. that means doll, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> so everyone, even today, calls me Gurya, 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 which is why, like, you know, when you ask that name question, to be honest, like, I, I actually have a huge identity in my nickname okay. in India. Everyone, like, even cousins, like cousins, cousins, and aunts, like neighbors, they're all like Gurya, 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 Gurya. So, um, so anyhow, so it was it was fun childhood. I would visit my grandparents regularly, like my, my mom's mm-hmm. in Gurgaon, like weekends on my daddy and dadaji mm-hmm. Punjab, almost like twice a month. Um, when I was six, we mm-hmm. moved to Saudi, and Saudi was uh, I had a really good time in Saudi. We were close to um, where Yemen is, like it was southwestern side mm-hmm. of Saudi. There were those beaches, there were mountains, and um, it, it was greenery too, like surprisingly people think it's desert, but no, there, there is greenery mm-hmm. and mountains there too. Um, my Our neighbors were a family of 10, and three girls were my age. Um, and Ramadan, yeah. which is going on now, like they would go to their house and uh, and like have dinner with them, and they would come to our place. It was it was really nice, and back in the day, in like this is 92, we didn't have internet. Mm-hmm. So they helped my dad buy his first car in Saudi, show him where the grocery wow. stores are and all yeah. those other necessities. It was really nice. I We had school in Saudis, but in mm-hmm. Arabic. So I couldn't pick up the language for math, science, um, social studies. So I had to, I was homeschooled. And then after, at the age of nine, my parents were like, you know, we homeschooled <laughs> you as much as we could. Now it would be good if you could, should, if you could like, you know, get a proper education. So I went back to India in boarding school. Uh, and at 18, I moved to Canada mm-hmm. for college. And um, Canada uh, is a very warm and welcoming country to mm-hmm. all immigrants. So I was so I had a great time in Canada. I graduated summa cum mm-hmm. laude. Um, I became a manager with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Mm-hmm. What else did I do? I wrote audit standards for Canada. I taught at the University mm-hmm. of Toronto. And I wrote campaign financing guide, three of them. So it was, I was going around, um, like, you know, in audit as a profession. And one day I get a call mm-hmm. from the UN. And and that's where it changed, changed a lot of things for me. So the call was, um, the context was that Donald Trump was selected um, as the president of the US. And so was the current secretary yeah. general. And reforms were a big agenda on US, for US. Like, you know, they contribute $10 billion that um, the US administration was like, we need to make sure the money is used wisely. So... For the Secretary General, financial reforms was a mm-hmm. huge portfolio, and I was called to assist with that. Okay. And, yeah, so that's how I made my way to the UN from being born in Great. India. Well, this is so, so fascinating, right? Because you grew up in, you grew up, and then you had so many life experiences in so many countries. How, like, surely this has impacted your personality so much, right? Do, do you see the difference in you? Like, for example... I, I can just give you an example for me, right? So I grew up in Mauritius, but originally my ancestors are from India, but we can't retrace them. But there is such a big impact of the culture. We're still, I, I understand Hindi and Urdu and, you know, the way we dress, like the Desi outfit is still that. But we are still African who live in Mauritius and now I'm in the UK. So it's a bit of a mix of everything where you feel like you don't belong anywhere because you're so different to everyone. Do you feel the same? I... I know exactly what you mean, and I feel like I—it's—I don't have that sense of I don't belong. I just feel I belong to mm-hmm. everyone, and everyone mm-hmm. belongs to me. Um, so I, I feel that sense of humanity, like, and I think it goes back to I was also raised as a human and not even as a mm-hmm. girl per se. 
you know, I mean, I was, um, I didn't realize gender differences until quite late in life. Um, so I was raised as like, you know, you're a human and every human has common needs of like, you know, love, affection. They want to grow, progress, contribute. So I've, and I think being raised in different countries, I've mm-hmm. seen that. I've like, no matter language or physical uh, dif- differences, like in someone from Saudi or, or someone from India mm-hmm. or Canada, we all have same needs. And I've always related to that. Um, and, and I think UN is like, when I joined the UN, of course, that was like even a bigger shock at that. Like, you know, now you have people from mm-hmm. all countries, like, you know, at least when you're in Saudi, it's like everyone is either Saudi yeah. or a couple like Asian, Southeast Asian in India, everyone is Indian. So now you have like everyone. So I, I, I think that's when I realized that, um, we're all so same. Like we distinguish ourselves based on our gender and nationality and mm-hmm. other differences by the end of the day, we're all same. And I think that really allows me to, um, to relate with everyone. And I know, so I backpacked, I backpacked a lot, like, you know, right mm-hmm. of passage for every person, like of college and stuff. And I, and I think that's what I've realized that, um, it's just so interesting how everyone, when they travel, feel that same sense. Wow, we're all alike. And and I remember like someone I was speaking to yet, uh, the other day, and they were telling me only 3% of people in the entire world have left their home state. Wow. Like, yeah, and I know for someone like you and I mm-hmm. who traveled extensively and, and have mm-hmm. different cultures that, that made us who we are, it's just 3% of the world population that's traveled. Oh, so I think that, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, Museums, and now for me, it's all all humans. You know, everyone feels pain the same way. If your loved one is sick, your heart hurts the same way. You, we all need love the same. I way. agree. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think this is such a good message as well because we just divide ourselves for all very arbitrary reasons that we shouldn't, right? We're all different, and we bring different things to the table, and that's great. But at the end of the day, we're all the same. So that that's exactly true. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think that allows us to then have common goals mm-hmm. too and common um, common aspirations because if we uh, move away from differences, it's just there's so much great to be done. The pie mm. can be extended instead of being split. Yes. Okay. So you mentioned boarding school. How was that? How's you, how was your experience of boarding school? <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. No one has ever asked me that question. So now <laughs> this is the first time I've been asked that. I mean, it was a... No, actually, I just realized. I, I think I do, I do remember that mm. for Al Jazeera. Okay. <laughs> um, it was it was interesting. Um, I I think you. I mean, I have like few memories that I tried to remember. Everything else, I tried to forget. <laughs> <laughs> I think the few things I remember is I did not unpack. The oh things. wow. Uh, uh, See, so the story was my parents left me. Like you know, co- coming from Saudi. Like, you know, where I had my little mm-hmm. brother there, who was, of course, the love of my life. I was like, oh, my goodness, my mm-hmm. baby brother. And then we had those three uh, three girls my age in my neighborhood. I didn't have that many people my age. So when I, I remember my first night in boarding school, my parents lived in the guest house and I was in, mm-hmm. in the hostel. Um, and I was just so thrilled that there are so many kids my age. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so nice. And I remember my parents asking me the next day for breakfast. They're like, so should we leave? Are you OK? And I'm like, yeah, bye bye. <laughs> Like I, I didn't even like give it a thought what they were saying and what I was mm. getting into, and then they left. And then I remember just like you know the it it washed off so easily that I'm like, oh yeah, the excitement mm. of being around my kids that I really was mm-hmm. missing my parents and I was oh. crying for like 
Oh my goodness, it was it was really bad. I did not unpack. I was um, I would cry almost every day. Um, and after two months, like you know, and and of course, parents, my wardens would mm-hmm. keep in touch with my parents regularly, and they're like, you know, this is normal. It's just <laughs> the way things are. And after two months, my dad's like, so how? Like you know, of course, it's hurtful yeah. for my parents too to see me this way. They're like, do you want to come back? My dad's like, you know, life would be difficult, but it will just make you stronger and and stuff. And like you know, and I was like, oh my god, is that? Does that mean if I leave, people will think I'm weak? No, 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 no. That cannot happen. I'm going to stay, and it's so interesting because at the age of nine, when I'm going through so yeah. much pain of like you know being separated, yet I have this right. part of me still decided no, I'm going to stay because I will not let the world know that I'm a person. Weak. <laughs> um, you know, so it's just so interesting, and and yeah, that's it. So I, I after that, I think the crying stopped. I finally mm-hmm. unpacked, <laughs> and um, and it's been interesting. Like you know, nine suddenly becomes mm-hmm. eighteen. You're doing everything yeah. for yourself. You're you're doing laundry, to like managing mm-hmm. your own homework. You're not, um, you're like deciding like you know how much time do you want to spend watching TV and and chatting with mm-hmm. friends and studying. So it's it's a huge growing up curve. And um, I think yeah, I, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> that sounds like a very interesting experience. To be honest, uh, the fact that you mentioned how you know for you at the age of nine being weak was not an option you know and obviously now all of the things that you're doing incredibly brave right and and it doesn't scare you and there's a lot of confidence in there would you say that self-confidence is something that was taught to you or do you think that's something that just just people have it I think Mm. it's both I absolutely believe um, self-confidence can be taught and can be enhanced in so many ways and I also think it's a trait some people have Mm -hmm. more than others and I'm looking back at my childhood I think I always had a Mm -hmm. lot of it um so I I think it goes back to like a very happy childhood in my younger years like you know just being pampered and like being treated as as princes of my grandmother's universe Um, and uh and I think just the name Gurdia so I think like just that so those formative years I think were really nice for me like until the age of nine it was I don't remember crying. I, I mean, like, of course, I'm mm-hmm. sure I, I would have cried, but like, I don't have any memories other than mm-hmm. positive memories. Um, and I think that was a strong foundation for me to be. That was a strong foundation for me yeah. to be me. Because I was given the space to be myself wherever I was in mm-hmm. my house, in my school back then. And I think that allowed me to always be mm-hmm. myself. And I think that's what this campaign is for me. Like, it's not really that I'm seeking a top position and stuff. Stuff. I'm just being me, which is, listen, there's a system which is capable of doing so much great work, making a difference in the lives of people. Why are we not doing it? There's so many people suffering. So for me, it's, I'm, I'm just being me through mm-hmm. the process. Um, and that foundation, I, I owe it to my parents and my grandparents and my extended family for giving that to me. Boarding school, of course... Um, enhanced it like I, I was of course like top of my class um and stuff there too I was the house captain and and valedictorian mm-hmm. and all that stuff so of course it gave me all the opportunities to also be myself mm-hmm. along the way uh but I but I really think it's foundation with that I will say that I have also when I moved to Canada I'll, I'll share yeah. a story with you like when I was in India back then I think India today's is um uh, is very much bilingual between Hindi and English. Like, a lot mm-hmm. of people know English back then. I wasn't too good in English at all. Like, we would study in English, but we still spoke to our family and friends mm-hmm. in Hindi. 
a lot. And Hindi movies were like primal. Like I, I don't remember watching English movies in India. I know sound, it makes me sound like so desi, but that's that. I think is the reality. I mean, the truth is, I wasn't into movies yeah. as much. I mean, so that I have to caveat. I wasn't too much into it. Um, so it shouldn't be said that um, that others are not like that. But I just I've never enjoyed movies too much. Um, so I remember moving, coming to Canada, my first day orientation mm-hmm. at York. Everyone is calling each other like, hey, hey, hey. And I'm like, oh my God, why are they calling each other grass? Does that mean we have to call professors trees? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so glad I never asked anyone that question. But I was like, oh my God, this is like such new language yeah. I'm learning. So it's like a big shock, that whole language. And then you're conscious about yeah. your accent. You're like, can they understand me? And when they make you repeat, you're just get even more mm-hmm. self-conscious. Um, so I think Canada was that that phase for me to restore my confidence and realize I'm not like them, mm-hmm. but it's okay. But they still are open to accepting me as I am. So I just have to be me. So I think my confidence mm-hmm. does dip when I'm in a new environment. And then it takes me a while to restore it to be like, okay, I just have to be me. If they don't understand, I can explain myself. I can mm-hmm. educate them. I don't have to take anything mm-hmm. personally. Um, so it absolutely can be learned. And, and that's something I would tell everyone listening that just be you. Like Oscar Wilde said, everyone else is taken. Yeah. We each have a unique role to play and it takes time mm-hmm. to figure it out. It took me, honestly, um, my own journey to figure this out until the age of 30. And um, whatever it takes for you, just remember, just be you. And with that quirkiness, whatever it is that makes us us just embrace that because that's when you start enjoying life and not having any confusions of like oh my god i have to read 10 self-help books i have to do this this yeah. so yeah i think that was my journey but it, a, a happy childhood i think yeah i agree i think i think you do absorb a lot of that from a very young age which leads to you believing in yourself and then when you grow up this just keeps this helps you a lot and yeah, absolutely agree with you on that. And with the self-confidence kind of dipping when, with new things, that's also, I think it's so healthy to admit to that, right? Because I feel the same. When you're starting a new job, you're starting something new, you're in a new team, you always feel like, oh, I don't know enough. I don't, no, 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 no. But then eventually you, you grow out of it because you think, no, listen, I've done this before. I can do this. But it's so good to admit that, okay, this happens, right? I don't just cruise through life feeling very confident the whole time. Yeah, I think that's my big message to everyone. It's like, you know, when you read someone's bio, when you introduce them, you're only highlighting the successes. There were a thousand failures leading to every one of those successes. And I think we we live life like just celebrating, like doing Mm -hmm. victory laps Mm -hmm. with each other. Oh my God, this is my celebration. This is yours. No, no, no. I think we really need to step back as women, especially to acknowledge that every victory has has 100 hurdles you Mm -hmm. had to cross, had... 200 bumps you had to go through and even a thousand Mm -hmm. failures so let's talk about that because that would allow others to be like okay I can do this too I can embrace um, my life as it has been and and continue forward and so yeah that's my big message to everyone is that dips happen Mm -hmm. failures happen and they will happen time and again it happens to me in some interviews where I'm like ah I wish I had (laughs) done that differently and um and I just uh, go on with it. And I, I happily talk about that too, not because I'm so proud mm-hmm. of my failures, but more because I want to tell everyone it happens to each one of us and we don't admit it just so I can give that opening to even that one person mm-hmm. who shined away. 
from achieving their goals, from stepping up into the world stage or any stage that they mm. want to. That's a very important point. The whole thing about, you know, there are thousands of failures behind the success that you see. And you know how people always say, do not be envious of someone's success if you're not ready to take the pain that they've been through to get there. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, but one question. So how do you deal with failure? Whatever kind of failure it is, what is your process of getting through it? I, um, I have, I have, I've definitely am maturing in <laughs> handling failures better as, as time is, yeah. is passing. Um, I think I've, um, I don't take failures that well, sadly. <laughs> yeah, me either. Um, I'm trying to learn it, from you. No, I don't think anyone yeah. takes failure well, to be honest. I don't know any one person mm. in life who takes failure as well, which is, I think, the best human quality because you you then are pausing and saying, okay, what went wrong, reflecting on it, and then trying to do mm-hmm. things differently. So um, so I think, which is a, a great quality we have, right, for progress, like our natural inclination is to just move upward. Um, how do I, so failures happen mm-hmm. every day, every minute, I would say, in terms of like, you know, you set goals and you don't mm-hmm. achieve, that's a failure. Um, and um, how do I deal with it? I think the first thing I've, where I've matured a lot is I've become kinder to myself. Where I just am like, you know what, it happened. Let's not beat myself up and uh, accept it, learn and move on. And, and then I try to not have that mental dialogue mm-hmm. on and on. You know, in the past, I would just constantly be reminding myself of that, torturing myself and not be able to live in the present. Um, so I think it's just, I just brush it off now. But I not brush it off like as yeah. if I don't accept it. I accept it, I learn from it and I I move on. And, and I think I also realize that it, it's so inevitable mm-hmm. that you will fail. In, in like, and when what I how I what I mean by failure is, of course, it's like a very high bar. I'm just saying, if my goal was this and I got here, I would call yeah. that failure. Maybe that's perfectionism, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the reason I like to call it for myself is so I can then strive to mm. even go here and um, go higher. Um, so yeah, I think it's just life is a learning lesson. Um, brush it off. Uh, discuss and find strategies to deal with it with it and for me those strategies are usually writing and meditating but not talking too much like i i realize i don't like to talk too much like you know some people are are talkers and they just love to talk about it like i realize it just makes things worse for me so i just absorb it and um and i think my parents also know this when like you know when things haven't gone well on on any Mm -hmm. specific thing uh they don't have on it like you know they'll probably just say it once and and mm-hmm. let it be. Um, so it's something I, I'm, yeah, I don't, definitely don't like to talk about it. So maybe we should move on. Yeah, let's move question. on. Okay. <laughs> let's go back to, you know, you mentioned how you got involved into the UN in the first time. So once you joined mm-hmm. the UN, what was, you know, your first impression? What was the good? What was the bad? So, um, so when I was, when I remember signing that dotted line and I was like, wow, oh my goodness, all my hard work leading up to this day will now be able to mm-hmm. make a difference on this world stage. I was thrilled to be invited to this castle on the hill because UN comes across like such an oh, yeah. elite organization where you must be special enough mm-hmm. to be invited. And I was like, wow, this is an honor and a privilege and I'm thrilled. And I turned 30. So it, of course, it's like such a great place. New York is such a great place mm-hmm. to be, right? You're like, wow, perfect place to to have the mm. third decade of my life unfold there so i'll start um i'll start i'll answer this question in like mm-hmm. a long form by explaining what i um experienced at the Please un do. both personally as 
mm-hmm. and professionally. Um, so when I joined the UN, like in few weeks of being here, I realized that the organization that is meant to do great things in the world is not really doing it. And um, and here's how here's exactly what I saw. First of all, mm-hmm. there are two UNs. There's a UN that is a decision-making body, which is Security Council, General Assembly, Economic and Social Commissions. These bodies are the ones that make decisions. And this is all we know about as a world. These are all the decision-making bodies. You know, when you think of UN, you're like, UN, oh, Security Council, General Assembly, September speeches, Economic and Social Commission, mm-hmm. SDGs. But that's all. But that is just the decision-making. That's tip of the iceberg. There's a new, there's a huge UN underneath that tip of the iceberg, which is responsible for implementation. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the learning I had. I was like, wow, I didn't even know it, that that's like a $50 billion entity that has 100 entities underneath. The head is Secretary General. For every dollar they receive, 50, um, 30 cents is used for the cause. Rest goes into bureaucracy. And... I think that's when I, I realized, wow, I don't think the world knows. There are two UNs. I don't think the world knows for every dollar 30 cents goes to the cause. I don't think the world knows that the refugee crisis is not because of decision-making. It's because of poor mm-hmm. implementation. Uh, for example, we have the highest number of refugees ever today, 85 yes. million refugees, displaced people, stateless mm-hmm. people. And these are people who are not voters mm-hmm. in any country. They don't have social media to mm-hmm. tell their stories. They just have the UN who's required to meet the basic humanitarian needs of food, clothing, shelter, security. Are we meeting that? No. We're not even meeting half, like the needs of half of the population, like half of these refugees. So the other half have to fend for themselves. And what options do these people have? They're trafficked, they're smuggled, mm. they're low to join terrorist organizations um, as a means to protect their fe- mm-hmm. girls and women or they're crossing the sea. And this is gross human rights violation and is absolutely destabilizing the world. And then you ask, and then I ask myself, like, wait, why are we not meeting their basic humanitarian needs? Then they say funding is not enough. And then I'm like, how is that possible? You, you just need $4 billion to meet hmm. their basic needs. And travel budget is $2.5 billion. That includes business and first-class wow. flights. Like, where, where, what is going on? And then when it comes to development, I, um, in 1980... China's GDP was below all but three African countries. And look Mm. where China is today and where Africa still is, which is a great Mm -hmm. continent, which has fantastic people, the richest in natural Mm -hmm. resources. Um, And I think the development approach that UN has adopted in Africa is a top-down model of you give Mm. money to the top and hope it will trickle down. It Mm. hasn't worked. Um, And when it climate, so climate was a big thing, right? Like, you know, in 2018 and stuff. So for every climate dollar the UN gets, only 15 cents, 15% goes towards nature-based solution, which will actually help in reducing, in combating climate change. Everything else goes into holding conferences and writing reports. And I was like, oh my goodness, when it comes to climate, what's there to talk about? What really is left to talk about? You just have to act. So I think, I think just to wrap, just to summarize the question that you asked, the good is that the decision-making is mm. fantastic. And that gets blamed so much, the veto, Mm. the veto. But we really have to step back to say that no decision has ever prevented us meeting the basic humanitarian needs of people in crisis. May that be a crisis of conflict, may that be a crisis of natural disaster, may that be a refugee or humanitarian, any form of crisis. We have always been allowed to meet those needs, but we're not doing it. When it comes to development, that has nothing to do with Mm -hmm. Security Council. 
that has everything to do with with the UN, not using an approach that's regonomics and not really, you know, being wind under their wings. It's more like mm. a brick on their head. Um, climate, who's stopping us? Like climate, there's like no decision that's prevented mm-hmm. anyone from doing anything. 15 cents on nature-based solution. Um, so I think th- that has been the big, that has been the ugly truth and the inconvenient truth in this whole journey is that the world doesn't know about it. But you know what's interesting is that everyone within the UN system... Yeah, that's what I was it. going to ask. Surely other people must know this as well who work there. I think, she. that's the, that was, that's the whole thing about what about my candidacy. So I'll step back. So, of course, like I, I figured this mm-hmm. out quite soon mm-hmm. in the game. And like everyone else, I kept mm-hmm. quiet initially. Because, like, you know, I thought my job is, like, you know, I'm sure I'm missing something. Yeah. I'm sure this system wouldn't have been like this. Like, I'm mm-hmm. sure I'm missing something. Let me just do my job. In few weeks of being here, I get hit by a cab. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I was leaving work late, midnight. It, it was Feb 9th, uh, it just past midnight, and 2017. And I was leaving work on 42nd and 1st. I got hit by a cab. I was taken to the ER. I had broken my leg. I had oh. bleeding and bruising. I, I didn't know the extent of internal damage. And I was thinking to myself, wow, if I had died today, what would my mm. obituary be? Aurora was a selfish person dedicated to the pursuit of happiness for herself alone. Because until then, truth be told, I had just seek personal and professional mm-hmm. goals. Like, you know, my life, I donated a little. I volunteered a little, of course, but I didn't play a mm-hmm. big game in life. Like, my the stakes were so narrow. The stakes were all about me. And if that had been my deathbed, I was just filled with so mm-hmm. many regrets. I was like, oh, my God, I've been a taker all my life. I've taken from my grandparents, my parents, society women mm-hmm. at large and whatever I given nothing and, and I'm a person of faith and I was just praying to God at that time I said like, please help me get through this and I promise I will make my life mm-hmm. mean something if you help me get through this so God kept his promise and then I I'm keeping mine so I was like you know what I have a unique opportunity to be at the UN at this stage like it's just um, let me do my part in making a difference mm-hmm. at the UN so I tried to reform the UN mm-hmm. internally because if you listen to any secretary general or any UN senior person, they have two explanations why things are bad. We don't have the money or the member yep. states are a problem. And I was like, oh my goodness, both are not the problem. Absolutely not. They are, that's, a, that's not a fact. We have enough money. You know, the, the cash reserve of UN, the last I checked, was $30 oh, billion. Wow. It's a yeah. cash reserve. And I've... And they get more than 50 billion annually, like for every dollar 30 cents goes. And I, I was like, that's absolutely not true. And I don't think a lot of people within the UN even know that there are 100 entities that make up the UN. There are six entities mm-hmm. on climate. There are six research and training programs. And and when I, after the, I wasn't able to reform the UN internally, you're kind of given two choices. The system just says either you leave, like the people are also open in suggesting that to you. Yeah. You should leave, you know, it's not for you. Or you have to accept things as they are and just make peace with it. No. And I was like, how many before me? <laughs> and, and done that. And that's when I was like, you know what? I, I don't mm. want to accept that. I know. I, I believe in the UN. I think that I, I think my foundation of belief comes from the decision making, which I really believe is doing a good job, and the employees of the UN. They are fantastic people. Like the sacrifices they make to work there is just unheard of like you know the locations are so hardship they visit their families infrequently and they're still doing the job that they're mm-hmm. hired to do that we have great foundation we have a great decision making we need the right leadership to steer us into the 21st century and i think um 
that's why I, I realized that someone has to do something and I, I put myself in that position to lead because no one else mm-hmm. was doing okay. it. Um, and that happened. So yeah, I made that decision in January of mm-hmm. 2019 after two years of working on the reform team, unable to reform internally. So yeah, last two years have been research, reading, talking to a lot of people to identify how we should move things forward. And I announced my candidacy Feb 9th, 2021, <laughs> which is four, th- four years yeah. after the anniversary <laughs> of the accident to keep my promise to God. And, um, yeah, and here oh, we wow. are. Okay, a lot to unpack here. The first thing is, obviously, after the accident, um, this is wonderful that, you know, you had like a life decision made right there for you, right? Um, what does it mean for you to have a life of purpose, a meaningful life? It's so liberating for me to have a life of purpose. And I want to be honest to say that life before the accident wasn't I, I don't think I was entirely happy. Like I was so successful mm-hmm. on paper. I was like one of the youngest professors writing audit mm-hmm. standards. And like on paper, I was, uh, I had reached the height of, height of my profession, but I don't know. I, I, I just wasn't satisfied from inside. Like I just, it was like always something better. I was chasing. I, I don't really know. After the accident, it's just that my life became so simple. Like having been so close to mm-hmm. that death, you realize all these trophies, all these like, and everything else in the face of death doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how you feel you have made a difference in the mm-hmm. lives of others. Like you, you're not that self-centered. So I think it simplified my life so much, which is why I still am in the studio apartment <laughs> that I first moved in. And, uh, and like, yeah, it's, it's just made it so simple. My, I don't have complications uh, or difficult choices to make anymore. Um, it's all about serving others. I, um, and I think the purpose the purpose journey is where it, it was just a coincidence that I was at the UN at that time. So that then ended up becoming my purpose that I was like, okay, let me just do the job I have been told to do to the best of my ability and make a difference. So I did do that. And when I realized that I wasn't able to change that a dollar to 30 cents to try to double it because um, the system wasn't, uh, the leadership wasn't interested mm-hmm. in that. That's when I realized okay, what do I do now? Do I leave or do I yeah. put my head down and, and just take the salary and, and live a yeah. comfortable life? And and I think that's when I realized that I it's so easy to be a taker. I have to give. It requires sacrifices and I'm going to do it. So, yeah, so it's, it's made my life much happier. Uh, difficult for sure, challenging for sure. Like it's, I, I don't think I've had a proper eight-hour sleep <laughs> in a long time. <laughs> You know, I, yeah, I, I, and I think the UN has been on my mind um, every day, every minute that I don't even think that I've, I've ever switched it off. Um, but it's totally worth it. I really hope it will. Um, I'm confident that a new UN mm-hmm. is going to be born soon, which will allow people to be part of the solution hands-on. And this candidacy, I think, I something I didn't realize at that time, but I'm now um, coming to the grip of it, that... It's inspiring so many people, our generation, mm-hmm. to run for positions, to not accept mediocrity. Because if you think about it, we are a generation that has made private sector mm-hmm. ethical. Like private sector is no longer about just yeah. profit for yourself. It's profit for society. It's sustainable mm-hmm. profit. Why is it that we're okay with governments and international organizations not what? doing efficiently? Mm-hmm. Why? We are inheriting the consequences of their poor results. We have to do something about it. And a lot of time we just stop at like talking and like, you know, tweeting about it or mm-hmm. doing the post. No, 
we have to take it through someone has mm-hmm. to take it through so i think this uh, ownership of like you know wait government is made of people we have to fix it mm-hmm. if it's not working so i think that's that's just really uplifting for me to see that my gen- that our generation is being involved in public sector in a more uh, meaningful way than just voting and yeah. moving on yeah oh totally agree i think representation is important right so seeing someone like you you know who is like me you know women of color who who is young as well and doing something like that it is sending a very strong message out there right and i think you you're doing a wonderful job um but what i want to ask you is do you still remember the moment where it clicked for you that okay i'm going to announce my candidacy i think i always knew i was going to announce it so i knew i was going to run 2021 okay and in 2021 um it okay i'll step back um so 2019 when i decided to run it was of course like you know daunting task but at least i had two years ahead of me to plan and then 2019 i spent a lot i finished columbia um university like i finished all the courses so the learning and education was done and to 2020 i was really looking forward to the to the planning and like putting it all together and then of course <laughs> And it's so interesting covid happened like i mean covid happened of course in december of 2019 but i think we the effect of that we saw it in march yeah. with the lockdown and i was like oh my goodness i was like and and like you know at that time my brain was like i'm sure the lockdown oh yeah we all thought much. that i think it's pretty okay. <laughs> yeah right like we all thought that and now here we are with like more than a year later yeah <laughs> yeah so and i think it kind of um I think I I realized in July of um 2020 that it was mm. going to be a lockdown all mm-hmm. the way through. Um so then the decision of date was always um like you know exactly when do you announce it was always uh there. One of the dates um I was toying with was uh the date uh, January 24th. The day Macintosh was released. So like you know one of my big influencers has okay. Steve Jobs. Like you know Steve Jobs has been so critical in ushering the fourth mm-hmm. revolution in so many ways um and one of the big was mm-hmm. Mac uh this Macintosh and back then like you know IBM was the biggest uh player in the business and IBM said computers are too smart people are too dumb we can't make mm-hmm. personal computers and he was the one who said who changed the game he said no people are smart you just have to give them an equipment that would work and he ushered personal computers and yeah. here we are with our iPhones and apps mm-hmm. and and everything so he was the guy who trusted people over mm-hmm. systems and and I've always been inspired by him and I was like you know that would be a great day to go against the big blue because you know back then Macintosh was like going yeah. against the big blue of its time that David and Goliath so we were like um you know it would be a good idea to do it on 24th but then it 24th was mm-hmm. his story it wasn't really my story so then I realized you know Feb 9th mm-hmm. is my story if i hadn't had that accident i would never have um i would never have um have been doing what i ended up doing i would have been living my life like the four mm-hmm. most likely and might have had made, might have made peace with with things and yeah. not challenge status quo so that ended up being feb 9 so i think that date was determined like around december of 2020 that i knew that, that mm-hmm. was going to be the date but i have to tell you just clicking that button of <laughs> It wasn't easy. It was like you know, I had drafted this email for all colleagues yep. of the UN that I was you guys going to send to everyone, and I was like, my fellow colleagues, today I oh, announced no. my candidacy. <laughs> oh my goodness! And 
realizing that you're sending it to the world was just um yeah it was it was real nerve-wracking i think i i think i sent it i want to say like around 2 oh, wow. a.m yes on oh, wow. time <laughs> and i didn't sleep that whole night it was it was just so weird and it's so interesting i was looking mm-hmm. at my phone and i actually do have a 15 minute video of oh, that wow. night and i think like, let me commemorate this night because i know i'll never be able to go back again because you know your experiences end up shaped like you you end up becoming mm-hmm. a different person mm-hmm. every day that you you don't know you can't go back in that mindset again so i did record it and i was listening to a bit of it um it's so interesting i was listening to a bit of it and i realized i've been talking the same thing all along so that's a good thing nothing yeah. changed that's <laughs> um but yeah it was it was so Gene, it's just so hard to describe right like you Like you think you have all the confidence to press that button but I remember I was shaking internally when I had to press it because I knew now everyone now it's public yeah get it. public and and I sent it at a time where I knew New York didn't wake up <laughs> you were like it. safe everyone is asleep so I, I kind of wanted to do it that way I didn't want New York to wake up to it like you know I wanted it to start with the Asian market and like you know for New York to like a few hours yeah. before they wake up I see it um see so yeah, I was so interesting um to send it wow. and now um Yeah, I think that that is like so many emotions at that time and but I at at one point I was like you know what this is mm. and then I just yeah. I laughed out down and I just <laughs> walked for a bit. So then what kind of responses did you get immediately after when people started seeing it? Do you know I have to say I did not get the first response until um 7 or 8 Oh wow, okay. I so I actually sent the message mm-hmm. when I was at work. I um I sent the message um so I live like right next to uh, so my apartment and you and I like right mm-hmm. next to each other it's like a two minute walk so I sent it from work and um I think I didn't get the first one like I said until 7 or 8 and if one person I remember like sent a message like oh my god your account is hacked <laughs> respond to any message at that time I was like someone said that your account is hacked a couple people responded by saying oh my god thank you so much this is like mm-hmm. so wonderful um so it was it's just so hard to relive that day now like I, I think the journey ahead mm-hmm. is so long that I haven't had the time to, mm-hmm. to relive those memories but I I think the emails from employees were very supportive like you know there were a lot of people who reached out and they're like oh my god thank you so much I fully agree with you and I'm so glad someone is doing mm-hmm. it kudos Oh, so, so it was uh, it was so overwhelming. Oh wow. Well, I I can't imagine. Like I I'm sure it was overwhelming in all the senses, but that that's so cool. And then like since then, right? You've had such a huge journey and now you have a whole team who works with you and you have people behind you. How how does that feel, you know, having a group? For example, there's someone who manages your calendar and someone who just tells you where to turn up and do what. Like how was that for you that transition from being a one person to now being a team? Um I think the biggest transition was the fact that I wasn't even on LinkedIn until the day before the campaign. Wow. So, I wasn't even on Twitter. I opened my Twitter and Instagram account the first week of January. I think Twitter was like oh, January wow. 2nd. I was like I need to mm. get a hang of this before I launch this campaign. So it was um, so for me it was a huge shock of opening myself to the public like I um like I wasn't the, I, I was such a mm-hmm. private person. So I think for me that journey was um was and and I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I didn't 
I didn't do a lot of interviews in March. So like, you know, of course, February happened. And I think New York Times is, is where things, um, things um, went, um, went mm-hmm. global. Um, and, uh, before, and in March, I actually didn't do that many interviews at that time. Like, you know, I would, I would kind of like manage my calendar quite mm-hmm. spaciously in terms of like I would do two or three interviews a day, uh, max four. Uh, but now it's like eight. Like now it's back to back. And I think that did take mm-hmm. me a learning curve to get used to it. Like, you know, to have consistent energy and consistent momentum on a back to back. Like I have a call in 20 minutes now, yeah. another one. Um, so it's a, it was, it was a practice. And I think you're without a team, you cannot mm-hmm. do anything. Like, and I think that's what I realized, like the job of a leader is by the end of the day, that you have to create an environment for others to accomplish their goal through mm-hmm. your shared goal. Like for me, my, I'm here not because, like I said, I seek the position of SV, like as if I had political ambitions walking mm-hmm. into the job. For me, it's because there's a problem that needs to be solved and we are the generation that can solve it. We need women leadership. We need youth more involved. We need someone with ideas now. Like, you know, for far too long, we've given this job to one profile of people that we need to bring in ideas and fresh perspective. With that, I think all the people who are part of the team now believe in that. And they believe in expressing that in different ways, like, you know, um, the volunteer management. So uh, Rohan Barad, who, of course, uh, you've interacted with, he's my deputy yeah. chief of staff. Like, he, he's been so involved in managing a lot of things. And, I, and I, as I see his leadership unfold through this, you realize that a lot of people, like, who are managing volunteers now, they, they come up with such great ideas that all I have to do is step back yeah. and let them be themselves. Mm. And as long as we're going towards a shared goal that we need a new UN and we need it now and we need to be part mm-hmm. of it together, it's just uh, beautiful. So I'm, I'm honestly humbled and thrilled and, uh, and I'm just eager to allow everyone in the world to achieve their potential in any way. If that means through share, doing this podcast, even if, like I said, it encourages one person to say, hey, if she can yeah. do it, I can do it. And someone who, like an NGO who feels like they're, voices and being heard to give them a platform through my mm-hmm. vision statement. So I'm, I'm just thrilled that, that the world is, is part of this with me and they're achieving their goals. So, so have you experienced any kind of pushback? You know, obviously you're a woman and you're a woman of color. Have you received any kind of like nasty pushback on these fronts? Um, so I would say that not, a pushback mm-hmm. per se, but of course there is, um, like you know, the there is that shock mm-hmm. to the system. But like you know, the sh- the system is used to seeing this job by a certain yeah. age group. That suddenly you come in with half that age and say that mm. you can do the job. It, it is taking a while for system to adapt mm-hmm. to it. Um, and and I think my job is I just have to educate and inform them. Like I want to make sh- like I want to make sure that. The secretary general election process is a fair and mm-hmm. transparent one where stereotypes, biases, and discrimination doesn't happen. Discrimination because of my gender mm-hmm. or my age should not mm-hmm. be the criteria to prevent me from presenting my case. And of course mm-hmm. it's happening. I won't deny it. It is happening. I, my job is to just educate and inform member states to be their mm-hmm. best selves, to be the better version of who they can be and rise above their biases. Because it's, it's a natural human tendency to be, you know, a bit tribal. Hey, you look like <laughs> yeah. me. You must be great. And, and to like, you know, to allow them to say, 
that's not a way to live human life. We're all different. We have to embrace differences. And I think what I try to remind member states all the time, what's at stake in this election is UN ability to demonstrate that it doesn't just preaches gender equality, youth inclusiveness, it mm-hmm. practices it. And also it tells the entire world to have free and fair elections. And on you, the member state, rests that ability to demonstrate that a closed election like Secretary General, which is like, you know, in a, in a controlled environment, can be happened in a fair and transparent mm-hmm. manner. So it's my job to educate and inform them. With that said, of course, they're biased. Yeah. They won't deny it. And it's unfortunate. Okay. We'll get through it. <laughs> change, um, change takes education, and I'm educating. And you're educating with me, so thank you. And to anyone listening, I think I would just say, don't be scared if um, young, um, just because of our age or gender, we're mm-hmm. uh, ignored. We'll just keep educating them. That's yes, all we can exactly. do. Exactly. As long as we keep powering through, you know, they'll learn eventually. <laughs> yeah. uh, Final will, question yeah. for you, you know, what are the biggest changes you want to see in the UN if you were to win the election? Um, so the biggest change I would like to see is that we have to take our role as humanitarian agency with respect and take job through completion. For example, refugee crisis, we need to make sure that we address the basic humanitarian needs of all mm-hmm. refugees, give them food, clothing, shelter, security. And while once we are able to address that, we need to do everything in our power to re- depopulate those mm-hmm. refugee camps. We can't have people in refugee camps stay forever. Today, the average age a person stays in refugee camp is 17 years. Oh my half of the refugees, yes, half of the refugees are kids. So we need to make sure that we, while they're there, we're educating them so we can quickly depopulate them through mm-hmm. repatriation, local integration, or mm-hmm. resettlement. And local integration means um, allowing them to work while they're there. And Uganda and Turkey are two countries that allow local uh, mm-hmm. integration, where like you know, if you have a refugee card, you can blend in and, and seek employment opportunities, mm-hmm. and then perhaps also become a, uh, a citizen of Uganda mm-hmm. and and start a family there, local integration. Repatriation means you allow them to go back to their country. And how do you allow them to go back? By addressing the issue that led them to leave it in the first place. Was that a conflict? Was that a natural disaster? Was that a human Mm -hmm. rights abuse or violation? So that is critical and that needs to be prioritized. No ifs and buts around that. When it comes to Mm -hmm. development, we cannot... Our model for development is hold a conference, write a report, Mm -hmm. and that's it. We cannot just like become a paper tiger of all the ideas and not implement or take anything through. So we need to focus on two things which will allow the most countries to get uh, to develop, which is global mm-hmm. internet, universal internet, and universal mm-hmm. online education. That will allow people to develop and uplift themselves out of poverty. India is a great example that developed because of mm-hmm. digitization, lifted people out of poverty, and that's something we need. Today, only half of the world has access to internet. And we've landed on Mars and yeah. imagine if all of us had it, we would be living mm-hmm. on Pluto. Um, when it comes to climate, honestly, in 20 years from now, we won't be talking about this election. We would be talking yeah. where we'll stay because of the climate crisis. Yeah, where do we, we go? <laughs> yeah. So instead of having 15 cents to a dollar go on natural nature-based solution, we need 85 cents to go on nature-based mm-hmm. solution. And here we can use two untapped um, talents that we haven't explored. First mm-hmm. of all, youth. youth. Today, majority of the world is youth under 35, the definition. 
youth unemployment is something that affects every country, but it's a huge opportunity to employ them to address climate crisis, to address biodiversity, to address climate, um, sorry, um, to address climate action, um, and um, and employ them because the thing is about youth, we expect so much from them. We expect them to live in the in the most difficult mm -hmm. time in the world, which is. Um, uh, like they're digital natives, like the stress of mental health that all this technology brings is something they have to bear that we didn't have to bear as much. Uh, job insecurity, it's not easy to get a job anymore. So it's an uncertain future we're giving them. It's an uncertain future even in terms of climate that we need to do our best to give them employment opportunities to seek economic freedom mm -hmm. for themselves. Um, when it comes to climate, another investment we need to make is climate entrepreneurs. Like, you know, we have these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who come up with the next best camera app or Snapchat and all these things, which mm -hmm. is fantastic, of course, but it's not like, it's not like make or break for, mm -hmm. for the world. So we need to invest in climate entrepreneurs. We need to do things differently, produce new products that are environmentally friendly so we can replace the old mm -hmm. ones that are not. Um, and that is the vision I see for the UN. And I see everyone involved in meaningful ways. I see our generation taking leadership position at the UN. Today... The average age of UN leadership is 62. I really think that we need to give 25% position yeah. to young people. And the system will totally be different. Oh, wow. This is very well planned out. I loved it. And I love how you know this. It, it just comes out so fluently. <laughs> but yeah, I'm very, very much looking forward. I wish you the best of luck in the election. And you have a number one fan here. So um, best of luck. And thank you so much for your time today, Akanksha. I hope you had fun. I definitely learned so much from you. I had such a great time. You were a fantastic host and I've heard a couple of your other episodes. I think it's just so uplifting the work that you do and thank you so much for the time. Oh no, thank you. thank you. Thank you and we'll be in touch. <laughs>